0: Good morning. Good morning. As we uh, as we come back together uh, for our uh, time of reflection and and, and sermon, it, again, a, my personal uh, thanks to uh, Kevin and and his preaching. Uh, Artist was uh, jumping in on the Zoom last week and uh, the uh, the Q and A session in the middle of the sermon. I, I I hope you appreciate diversity of styles of preaching there is certainly not one right way to do it and Kevin Allen is uh, a wonderful and uh, I've known him gosh since uh, for about 17 years uh, since we were both pastors in the Rocky Mountain Presbytery in different churches uh, back in Colorado and so uh, blessing to have him come and share about the ministry of evangelism uh, and really the good work and good materials that uh, Christianity explored. Uh, provides for churches. And uh, again, uh, just a a great ministry and a blessing to be sure. And it's great to have him uh, out here in Oregon helping to encourage that aspect of church life uh, and our calling to share the good news in word and in deed. Uh, We return this morning now to our sermon series in Romans. We're still in chapter one. And a brief uh, reminder that last time, We talked about the wrath of God being revealed uh, or the anger of God being revealed and the context there being, of course, his description of himself. That is to say that God reveals himself in the Old Testament as a God slow to anger and abounding in love. And we talked about a biblical definition of wrath or anger being love moved to deal with evil in a loved one, in something God loves and cares about. So God is motivated. His anger burns against those things which would rob us and deny us of our ability to reflect his image. Our calling, our created joy to be image bearers of God himself. And evil is not just an annoyance. One might be frustrated. I'm not going to show you right now, but let's just say there were a few mosquitoes in Wyoming and the back of my calves looked something like a pincushion. Mosquitoes are annoying. I suppose I could get in some way angry at them, but that is not the same thing as evil which robs and destroys humanity. We we understand that these things happen on a scale and to to imagine that God's anger is as fickle as my frustration with mosquitoes feasting on my calves and God being angry at the fact that I didn't thank him for my dinner or pray uh, properly or any sort of religious thing is to deny how deep and how wrong real evil is. And part of what I hope we could discuss in that sermon was that unless we appreciate what real evil is, we're often surprised by it, particularly when it comes so close to home. We imagine evil to be something out there, something that only happened in World War II or in Rwanda. And those are horrible evils. But God's concern and love is for every facet of evil that robs individuals and communities of their ability to be human, to reflect the image of God. And so now we move on from a definition of love, which is motivated to work against and to undo evil. So clearly seen on the cross, to Paul's explanation of of how evil spreads and what it looks like, for God to be angry at the things that we do consciously or culturally, which deny our calling to be created in his image. This morning, the sermon, we're just going to read uh, a few verses. I'll go ahead and start in 18 and read through verse 23. Hear now God's word. For the wrath or anger of God is revealed from heaven. That is the place that he dwells against all. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, we are still trying to understand what it means that we have become the temple of the living God, a place where you dwell. Lord, you are not far off. You are close. And therefore, we ask you through your servant to Give us insights and encouragement from your word as to who you are and what you are doing and how we might see you clearly so that we might follow, so that we might have our faith strengthened and encouraged. And whatever is said this morning, Lord, that is not of you or useful for the building up of your people, may those those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So uh, there are many ways in which our sight can go that happens slowly, whether it's glaucoma, whether it's cataract, there's ways in which we kind of don't even perceive our sight to be slowly decreasing, that it becomes increasingly uh, more narrow, we lose our peripheral vision, we have blind spots that are created by all manner of things that slowly creep up in our eyes. I was working uh, hard, which might be, you know, difficult for some of you to imagine, but at the farm we were out there and it was hot and I was uh, mowing uh, and I was fixing fence and it's what I do on vacation and, you know, the sweat just sort of comes into your eyes and then, you know, fogged up my glasses and I could, by the end of uh, mowing kosher weed, which kicks out a lot of pollen, hardly see out of my glasses, let alone through my blood red eyes, but it was worth it. And I thought I was doing something useful. And so my ability to see anything else uh, was rather unimportant until, as you can tell, I walked into a half open garage door, which is so there was some talk of maybe you know talking about the when you don't have any hair, anything you do running your head into something shows up pretty quickly. A little bit more sight would have been good. There is a challenge that for each one of us, in different configurations, there are ways in which it becomes either immediate or slow, slow in its development. Our perception and our vision for the Lord can be decreased, both inside the church and for those who are not Christians. It may be the things that uh, that cause us to uh, fear. Peter, in the moment in the passage that we saw this week, it was the waves that caused him to fear, which took his eyes off of the Lord. It may be our need for comfort that blinds us to the comfort of God, or how sometimes comforting others becomes a way that we ourselves become comforted. Uh, There is uh, a group that... uh, my wife and I were, were are talking to is a, it's a pyramid scheme that will go unnamed at this point. But one of the things that they did is they encouraged their new people to go around and look at other people's houses. And it was called dream casting. Bible calls it coveting, but uh, you know, you don't just drive around and look at somebody else's house and go, that's what I want. My motivation for life and future is dream casting, but it changes my vision because my greed can take my eyes off of the Lord and put it on something else in a way that distracts me from seeing who God really is. And sometimes the Bible says even our longing for peace can cause us to be blind to what God is doing so that the prophets warn when evil is afoot, sometimes we will cry, peace, peace, where there is no peace. There are all kinds of things in our lives, our hurts, our sorrows, our human anger and frustration that make it incredibly hard for us to see who God is. And Paul is recognizing and telling us that the human condition is one of a lack of clear perception. And there are a few indicators of that. So first of all, we'll look at verse 20, what we clearly perceive, what is available to us in the character of God in and through nature. What we know, what they know, and lastly, what it looks like to become a fool and how we can become a fool in Christ. So the first three steps, perception, knowledge, if we're not having our eyes on Christ, it leads us to be a fool. But when we see properly, we become, at least in the world's eyes, fools for God because we see things differently not in the immediate fears that may be around us. So first in verse 20, uh, it tells us that the eternal power of God has been perceptible. We can see the power of God. It made me think of Job 40, uh, 15 and following, where God is confronting Job with his lack of knowledge and he uses the illustration of all of creation and then gets down to, behemoth and leviathan, and the massive glory of these things, and the power and intelligence that it takes in creation itself, and we've heard all of the creation debates that get down to certain discussions about complicated machines, even in the most simple single-cell animal, just don't happen. And as much as science can tell us what it's really telling us is about the power And the glory of God who creates means and structures. Some of that may be interspecies, I mean, uh, within species evolution through genetic codes and 15 other things. Why constrain God's creative acts? He can do it in a second with a word and he can create a process and superintend it so that it creates a behemoth and a leviathan and stars and moons and galaxies. That takes power. Even if it started with a sovereign Big Bang, somebody had to set that off. That takes power. There is no power inside creation that can get done what creation manifests, what it tells us about the other who comes from outside the system. The power of God is clear. And it doesn't matter whether it becomes An animist where I reduce the gods and the powers to being trees and bushes and fish. Or I become a materialist and say the power is in the thing itself, which I can't really understand. I can just describe matter is eternal and there is nothing outside the system. It doesn't answer the power problem. So God's power is manifest. And we have to make it small, make it power that we can kind of understand and in all due respect put into a math equation, which again, to all of my engineering and science members, the math equations you do are amazing and beautiful, but they will never explain the whole. And you know that and you delight to see the pieces that God shows, but it can't explain the power. Secondly, scripture says that his divine nature is manifested in creation. And this is a little tricky because sometimes you, you really can't get morality from nature. I strongly discourage you to get morality from nature. Artists and I were sitting uh, in a, on a couch and when I wasn't out fixing fence, and we hung a bird feeder up and the finches were enjoying it. And it turns out that finches are angry, angry little animals. And they really establish a pecking order, which is probably where we get that, right? That in chickens, uh, about who got to feed first. And I'll tell you, if you were not, it was not your turn on the bird feeder, you were instructed by the other higher finches and birds that it was not your turn. Sharing wasn't a big part of the finch world. And yet, Jesus does use creation to talk about the eternal character and divine nature, and what does he say in Matthew 6, 26 through 30, and really most of that passage uh, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, look at the birds of the air. They do not plant. They do not reap, but the Lord feeds them. Look at the lilies of the field. They're here, but for a moment, and yet, Solomon in his greatest raiments was not clothed as gloriously and beautifully and intricately as those lilies. If that's true of the things that God created, how much more so will he care and serve and provide for your needs? There is a way in which the glory of creation, its abundance The way in which God provides for his people, provides for not only the animals of the field and the birds uh, of the air, the fish of the sea, but the abundance that we regularly enjoy. And in fact, what we found is that even in the fallen creation, because of us working in tandem with God, not always perfectly, but yet striving to, Famine is a thing of the past, except for political reasons. Famine is not a reality that we can't produce food in one place and get it to another. It's that, sadly, oftentimes, you can't get it to the people who need it because there are human sins that are prohibiting it. God has created a world of abundance and care. And it's but a small picture of the abundance we experience when Christ gives himself. But the divine nature is present in Scripture, Jesus says. If we look at it through the lens of a loving God who, yes, we have a creation that suffers under the consequences of our sin, that does not work in harmony with us the way it was designed to, and even so we see the provision of God. And Jesus is clearly going to take us to the next step, which is your greatest need, of course, is not just your physical sustenance, but life eternal with me, where we will have a whole nother level of understanding of what the divine nature is as it pours out its blessing and generosity on us. What does that mean more personally? Well, I want to suggest uh, that uh, as adults, how often we live in uh, fear of either the power of God, because evil seems to be more powerful. And so, oh, protect your base. All right. Musical Distraction. Whether we're a believer, a seeker, or a non-believer. Job is wrestling with the fact that most of his life that he thought was his safety and security had been taken away from him. His family, his money, his health. He's wondering about the power of God to bring things about rightly. God's answer to Job is that your momentary experiences are not the best way to see the power of God. That God is doing things that may be beyond your imagining in some of the darkest moments where it appears that evil and death are more powerful. And God uses his description of his ability to create to remind Job that he should see the eternal and infinite God, not the temporary suffering. Although important and meaningful to God, it doesn't define the fullness of our existence and reality. And what he's wrestling with Job uh, is to say, Job, don't define your life. Don't define your eternity by the suffering you're currently experiencing. See my eternal power. What are we tempted to do when we take our eyes off of Jesus? How does it change our prayers and our trust and joy? What they knew. Verse 21. Verse 21 says uh, that they, uh, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. They knew. See, this is a challenge of Paul is that we actively have to either ignore God or change him. But the idea of God is one that humans simply cannot get away from. And to this point, psychologists can't explain the origin of. That God-shaped hole in our life and existence. That need to have something bigger than ourselves. To worship and to be cared for. They knew. And they did not honor him. Now, what does that mean? They did not honor him as God. Uh, Well, they honor everything else. They take credit for themselves. In what ways does it become easy to honor our own efforts? In what ways does it become easy for us to have a platitude or a classic phrase about thanking God? or it's the power of God, but in our culture and in ourselves, have we not created an expectation that really, sure, salvation, getting out of here and going to heaven is something God does for us, but everything else is my blood, sweat, and tears, my efforts, my abilities. We have both theology, perhaps perverse, that says that God honors those who work. And we honor and imagine that people's success is just based on how much blood, sweat, and tears they were willing to give. And although scripture encourages that, we've talked about before how really two-thirds of the Proverbs that talk about poverty talk about it in the context of injustice. Only one-third talk about it in the context of laziness. Yet somehow we think that most of the Bible says that you're poor because you're lazy. And so we take the honor, the privilege, the recognition that what I have is because of my achievement. And we deny the fact that it may be what I have has been hard won on the backs of someone else. And who might they be? And maybe I am conscious or unconscious. And who are the oppressed and why are they? And are they still? There's a subtle way in which claiming our establishment, our peace, our wealth, our health, as primarily our efforts with a nod to God, is not the same thing as recognizing that the breath I take this moment and my security in heaven are equally volitional acts of God's will moment by moment. I never exist without the conscious, focused will of God willing me to exist. I am not a watch that has been turned loose. I am a dependent being. And there is no honor for me apart from the honor of reflecting a God who wills me to exist. Secondly, there is giving thanks, which logically follows, right? Who? Deny God's nature. is claiming power for ourselves. If we give thanks to God in a way that reflects his nature and his character, it is going to cause us to be generous the way God is generous. If I am thankful to God for my very existence, chances are I'm going to be less provincial, less fearful about what I have being taken and stolen. I'm more likely to reflect God's glory when I thank him. It's not just thank God for this food. And then we all joke around the table or dad for going to work. Maybe that's only in my household. And then we really thank mom because dad doesn't really go out to work. Sometimes we deny God his thanks outright. Sometimes it becomes a subtle part of what we do. I know in this day and age, it it, it it is political, but it's not political. It is a question of kingdom ethics. When we have laws and structures which deny opportunities to some while giving to others, can we really thank God for what we have if it is the expense of others? I think some of you know, I was just finished up reading a book called The Color of Law. And one of the interesting comments he makes in the book is that because of zoning laws and the approval of neighborhoods, it is often true that Section 8 housing doesn't get approved in neighborhoods with better schools, better opportunities, better banks. We keep them with their own because we're afraid of what? Losing property value. Well, who are we giving thanks to if we think our property value is determined by the character and color of our neighbors rather than giving thanks for what we have both now and eternally it can be sneaky the way our vision of what we find security in becomes clouded it just becomes a cultural truth that it's pragmatic that it's just good business Giving thanks to God cannot be done in the context of using our own human ethics to protect or preserve what we're afraid we're going to lose that we can't take with us. Lastly, becoming a fool. Well, again, uh, we start doing incredibly silly things uh, like worshiping people. Uh, And this time, the great temptation, of course, was to worship Caesar. And they were putting up Augustus Caesar statues and some of his family members and Claudius and Nero. And so they were worshiping uh, the Caesars themselves. And then, of course, most of the gods, uh, Zeus and the rest of them, well, they all had human forms and they were all usually human unless Zeus was a goose. Uh, So you had these human idols you would worship. And then, of course, some people were pantheistic. They worshiped trees and bushes. And it becomes kind of odd to give credit to things that we know are fallen and broken. We have to do a lot of erasing of history to ever begin to have the notion that a king was ever divine. We become fools. We have to increasingly not know ourselves and not know the other. Again, we can find all manner of things to make an idol. What is it that we find in ourselves and what we worship that makes us better and wiser than the people around us? The only answer to that can be God. If we find our security in the things of this world. Money. Power, race, gender, intelligence, strength. We can create idols to all of those things. We can worship them in various seasons of our life. And in the end, in comparison to the power and the glory of a God who created the universe, how can it be described as anything but foolish? And in the end, when we see that the nature of our God is one of servant, not taker, that to exist in a way that I live in fear of not being clothed like the lilies, that I begin to function with the firm belief that I will not be cared for lest I care for myself, in the divine economy, I become a fool because I don't trust the one that can keep me walking on water The one, if I look in his face, I know the glory and power of eternity. And I look to the right and I look to the left and I become a fool. And the world tells me you're not a fool because they're all looking to the right and to the left as well. But it can be a heavy burden. The notion of acting contrary to our culture, even our church culture, acting contrary to the pressures of the world and not knowing what my retirement is going to look like. And I want to conclude with Jesus's words from Matthew 11, verses 28. Jesus says to all of us who are working so hard to look at anything that will provide security and comfort other than himself, he says, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy burdened, is there anything heavier than having to secure your own security and salvation? Is there any weight that crushes us more than the fear of what will happen tomorrow and trying to secure it against all eventualities? Is there anything heavier? And Jesus says, come to me, all you are heavy burdened, And I will give you rest for I am meek and gentle. My burden is light. God's calling is for us. Yes, to work and to serve and glorify the King, but in his strength, not our own with a vision for his world and power and not tempted Distracted with an ever narrowing vision of the immediate, the ups and downs, the trials, the fears, the economic declines and upswings, but the sure knowledge that the ethic and reality of an eternal God, whose character is seen in what he does for the least of the flowers of the field, and how he provides for the greatest acts of creation is a God worth looking at, a God worth resting our gaze on, and a God who eternally will never, 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 let the evils and the waves overwhelm his children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you to be merciful to the preaching of your word. Thank you again. That when we see you and see you alone, we will find ourselves at peace and with strength that we can never imagine in and of ourselves. May we know what it is to put not just down the burden of our salvation, but see how the burden of our salvation frees us also from the burdens of fear in this world. Connect the dots by your spirit in Jesus name. Amen. Take a moment uh, now of reflection as musicians come up to uh, look at those prayers that are printed there in your worship folder. And we, uh, At the uh, end of service, there is an opportunity to give uh, tithes and offerings in the same box that you can put your prayer cards in. But really and truly, our desire is to give us a moment here to reflect on what does it mean, as Paul says in Romans, to give ourselves as living sacrifices to a God who gave himself to us.